Right on, right on, right on. Live right. Live right. In the real world. Right on radio. Right on radio. Good day and welcome to Right On Radio. My name is Jeff. As you just heard in the intro, the tagline of the show is live right in the real world. I'm not going to tell you how to live, but I will show you the real world, both visible and invisible. And just just before I get into the show, I feel that I'm going to read a note that I wrote to uh, some people who pray for me all the time, and I'm going to use this as a bit of an introduction to the show. It says, please pray. I woke up with confusion and had planned not to do a show today, but the burden is so heavy. I feel the Lord has a message and a warning to those about what is now rising He has provided me with interesting evidence to combine with his word. Feeling sick about the trap laid for many of God's people. And of course, I got a very, very encouraging response back to that. And I just want to explain when I said confusion, it was just because my plans were not to do a show. However, there was a real burden on my heart and then I didn't know what I was going to do the show about. And just a few things the Lord brought to me and they weren't making sense until I went searching in his word. And it's, and it's the first thing that I went to pretty much um, as the Lord leads and it all makes sense. So you, as we go through the show, we're going to see, uh, two different videos. Uh, the first one is about 12 minutes. The next one is about eight minutes. And then I'm going to go to this, uh, story and kind of tie everything in with you. But I want to start out with this premise and this is very important. Listen to my words here, please. No matter how nasty this world is, God puts people in places of power. He put some unpopular people in places of power, and sometimes he puts very good people in places of power. It's up to the Lord, and it's the Lord's will that will be done. Now, having said that, A functioning society has rules and laws. And for the most part, society functions fairly well together because we choose to abide by these laws. So just as an example, traffic laws. We agree to stop at red lights and we agree to go at green lights. If we as a society did not adhere to those rules, it would be absolute chaos and a lot of hurt. Now, as evil as some of the stuff that's going to 
be shown even in this presentation here, particularly in the first video. This is more for an understanding of how we got here, but you also have to remember the people who are putting forth these plans are also put there by God. Now, I will always argue that we as a church have let this happen because we were ignorant. And the scripture says, do not be ignorant. The scripture has warned us about these. You know, we just did the study of Jude and it has warned us a present day warning for us. So I want you to keep those things in mind. The Lord puts those people in charge and he lifts up whom he wants to lift up for his purposes, which are much higher than ours. He is God. We are not. And one of the deadliest things that we see going on right now is this rise of new age, even in the Christian patriotic circles. Christ consciousness, we become gods, God is within you. It's a twisting, folks. It goes back to the original lie in the garden from the serpent. So keep those things in mind as I'm presenting these, and they're very different in uh, presentation. So this first one, I think, is telling. Uh, please stick around to the end, ladies and gentlemen, because where this is going to go, I really do feel that God has a message, and it's directly from his word. It's not me. I'm going to read it in context, so it's not me just picking a single scripture and saying that. No, there's a story that goes alongside of all of this, and I'm going to be commenting along the way. Let me just share this screen. Hello. In the traditional motion picture story, the villains are usually defeated. The ending is a happy one. I can make no such promise for the picture you're about to watch. The story isn't over. You and the audience are part of the conflict. United Nations headquarters, which was built in 1945 and financed largely by John D. Rockefeller. Inside UN headquarters is an ominous meditation room. The custodian of the meditation room is Lucis Trust Company. At one time, the Lucis Trust was located at 666 United Nations Plaza and was formally named Lucifer Publishing Company. The Rockefeller-funded UN Meditation Room is 33 feet long and 18 feet wide. 18 feet is 6 plus 6 plus 6. The small, dimly lit, windowless room was built in the shape of a pyramid that is laying on its side. At the center of the room is a four-foot-high, black, casket-shaped stone slab, which weighs 6.5 tons and is extremely magnetic and rests on a concrete pillar. The pillar descends beneath the floor into the bedrock and taps into the Earth's hyperdimensional energies to induce a state of altered consciousness. 
Not far from the meditation room is the United Nations Security Council chamber. This is the emergency room of the UN, where the world leaders meet when there is a threat to peace. They decide the fate of nations. Notice the giant mural that towers over the Security Council room. The central focus of the UN mural is the phoenix bird that has risen. The phoenix bird is a symbol of Lucifer. Egyptians believe that the phoenix symbolized a god who rose to heaven in the form of a morning star like Lucifer after his fire immolation of death and rebirth. Notice that the phoenix bird is not standing above his own ashes. He is standing above his old skin. Like a snake, he has shed his old skin and is revealing himself as God at the center of the mural. At the top left, there is a church steeple without a cross. The missing cross symbolizes the death of Christianity. Below, a woman receives the rays of the sun god, while the man in front of her plays Pan's flute. To their right are two pyramid symbols and people joined together by a long blue serpent-like cloth. Below the risen phoenix, a sword is driven through a dragon beast. This represents the killing of old beliefs and religions that depicted Lucifer as a beast. The New World religion worships him as beautiful. Behind the phoenix, the ghostly figures of the walking dead are stepping into a void. They symbolize depopulation. On the right panel, the pale horse from the book of Revelation is the bringer of death to humanity through weapons, hunger, and disease. The man is releasing him. The chained black man represents slavery, while the top panel of the mural shows a technologically advanced white race who control industry, art, and science. In this post-apocalyptic mural, the military man standing on the tail of the beast represents worldwide military power. He tips his helmet to the elite, who are climbing out from underground cities, where they safely hid from the apocalypse. In the main oval panel above the phoenix bird, a woman is holding flowers. She is the bride in a wedding ceremony. Could the newlywed symbolize William and Kate? The serpent in human form is tempting the little girl Eve, who accepts the apple. On the right side of the top panel, a reptilian green creature with scaly skin is dancing with a naked woman while musicians entertain him. The general message of the UN's Phoenix Rising mural is that humanity is stepping into a new Luciferic reality. Beneath this disturbingly prophetic mural, world leaders make global decisions that affect the lives of nearly 7 billion people. Guido von List believed in renouncing Christianity and returning to the pagan religions of the ancient Europeans. And Hitler himself is quoted as saying, the old beliefs will be brought back again. The whole secret knowledge of nature, of the divine, of the demonic. We will wash off the Christian veneer and bring out a religion peculiar to our race.
as he said in his own words, the destruction of Christianity. This was the same aim of Madame Blavatsky and her Theosophical Society. And it was also the same aim of Madame Blavatsky's occult successor, Alice A. Bailey, the founder of Lucius Trust, an occult organization that currently has its headquarters within the United Nations. The objectives of this organization, Lucius Trust, have been codified and embodied in the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights and in the United Nations Charter. Alice A. Bailey, the founder of the quote organization Lucius Trust, developed 10 strategies to establish a new world order. These strategies are number one, push God out of the schools. If the people grow up without reference to God, then they will consider God irrelevant to day-to-day -day life. They know that they have to go after the very things that the Judeo-Christian tradition honors and values. Uh, morality, belief in God, faith, the importance of family, the sanctity of life, uh, the sanctity of marriage. Number two, break the traditional Judeo-Christian family concept, break communication between parents and children so that parents can't pass on spiritual values to their children. Do this by pushing excessive child rights. They are extremely anti-parent. It, it, it is an effort to get the children to abandon the values of their parents. Through the propaganda they teach them, seven hours a day for 13 years, and even longer if they attend college. We are losing most of our children to the other side because of the anti-American, anti-God, and anti-free enterprise rhetoric they are filled with in the government school. Number three, remove restrictions on sex. Sex is the biggest joy and Christianity robs people of this. People must be freed to enjoy it without restrictions. But their game right now is to corrupt the 15 to 25 year olds or less. And right now they're down in the first grade with Heather has two mommies, daddy's roommate, uh, gay pride parade. And now by eighth grade, they'll pass out condoms and school colors because that's so patriotic. Number four, since sex is the greatest expression of man's enjoyment of life, man must be free to express sex in all its forms, homosexuality, orgies, even bestiality are desirable so long as no one is being abused or harmed. We also see immorality being promoted through our schools, the kind of sex ed curriculum that is being used and paid for with our tax dollars would shock most parents. Number five, people must be free to abort unwanted children. If a man can have sex and then live without the consequences, then the same should be true for a woman too. They are for the entire feminist agenda, uh, starting with abortion on demand, tax-funded abortions. Number six, every person develops soul bonds. So when a soul bond wears out a person, must be free to divorce. When one starts to grow, one must be free to get together with that person, even if they are married.
their entire purpose was to detach our culture from any moral anchors whatsoever. Number seven, diffuse religious radicalism. Christianity says Jesus is the only way. Diffuse this by A, silencing Christianity, and B, promoting other faiths, the creation of interfaith harmony. At its core, it's a rebellion against God and God's uh, laws. And that's what the battle is about. That's what the assault is, is on. That's why Christianity is, is, uh, is a target. Number eight, use the media to influence mass opinion. Create mass opinion that is receptive to these values by using TV, film, the press, etc. Note well what Western believers call normal in the African church would be pornography. They look at what holds society together, they understand it, but they don't want that. They want change and they will subvert and rot every good and decent thing we believe in. Number nine, debase art in all its forms, corrupt music, painting, poetry, and every expression of the heart and make it obscene, immoral, and occultic. Debase the arts in every way possible. They've done everything in their power to dumb down our children, undermine our families, rewrite our history, and promote obscenity and immorality everywhere that they can. And number 10, get the church to endorse every one of these nine strategies. Get the church to accept these principles and to say they're okay. Then legal ground is given for these values to get a foothold. It wasn't until I was watching an old film from World War II that I realized what the left has been doing in America to pit the poor against the rich, blacks against whites, and the young against the old is the same tactic Hitler used to disunify Germany. You see, they knew that they were not strong enough to conquer a unified country. So they split Germany into small groups. They used prejudice as a practical weapon to cripple the nation. Remember that when you hear this kind of talk. Somebody's going... So this is obviously an older uh, film that I just showed you, but it's very, very relevant today. Um, I'll just make a couple comments. For those of you who are watching on video, you probably saw the mural that was being decoded that's in the UN. Uh, today, we have much better understanding of a lot of those symbols that are up there. Uh, so although I agree with the premise of the what the video said it represented, I think we see it a little bit more clearly now, which is, you know, dark to light, which is the false light. The other thing that's very interesting, although this was, you know, only a few years old or 10 years old when this came out, um, the 10 points that they uh, did, they've all come to fruition. We're actually on point 10 right now. 
where the church is starting to endorse these things. People who are born-again Christians or claim to be born-again Christians are now publicly talking about Christ consciousness. We're all in this together. The melding of the different religions and spiritual practices. Now I'm going to show you something that uh, is quite a bit different. Uh, this video is just about 10 minutes long and uh, I'm showing In August you of 1971, Professor Phillips... Hold on. I didn't share the screen properly and it start, the video started. One second, please. This one is very interesting and you're going to wonder why I'm putting this with the other video, but it'll all make sense. In August of 1971, Professor Philip Zambardo began an investigation into the power dynamics that exist between guards and inmates in a prison setting. The object of the Stanford Prison Experiment was to determine if it was the acquisition of power that made guards turn brutal, or whether brutality was actually intrinsic to human nature itself. The notorious experiment that ensued would kick off decades of academic controversy and suggest some very dark things about the nature of humanity. Today, we're going to take a look at why the Stanford Prison Experiment might be the most disturbing study ever conducted. But before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the Weird History channel and let us know in the comments below what other psychology-related topics you would like to hear about. During the 1970s, both the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps were interested in learning about the hierarchies of power in military prisons. Accordingly, the U.S. Office of Naval Research issued Philip Zimbardo a grant to study the relationships between prison guards and prisoners. The objective would be to determine if those relationships were shaped more by the prison environment or the personalities of the guards. The grant would be used to create a mock prison environment in which to conduct the experiment and to pay the participants. The Stanford Prison Experiment started with an ad Zimbardo placed in the classifieds. It read, Male college students needed for psychological study of prison life. $15 per day for one to two weeks. 70 people applied. The applicants were interviewed and asked to take personality tests. Anyone who had a criminal record or record of abusing narcotics was eliminated, as was anyone who displayed personality disorders, physical disabilities, or psychological problems. Ultimately, 24 college students, all white and all male, were selected to participate. They had no idea what they were getting themselves into. Zimbardo and his team randomly divided the students into two groups, prisoners and guards. There were 12 of each category, nine that were active participants, and three that were alternates. On August 17, 1971, the experiment began when the nine prisoners were arrested by actual police officers from the Palo Alto Police Department. Each person was taken into custody, then had their mugshots taken before being fingerprinted, blindfolded, and moved into a holding cell. Finally, they were taken into a mock prison that had been set up in the basement of Stanford's Jordan Hall. The fake prison felt very real. The researchers who created it had consulted with prison officials and ex-convicts before designing it. The cells were built in a space that was normally used as a laboratory. 
Each cell had a barred door, a cell number, and room for three prisoners. Other touches included a solitary confinement cell that had been created in a closet, and a rule that prisoners had to be blindfolded before being taken to the bathroom. To avoid selection bias, participants were assigned to be either prisoners or guards based on the results of a coin toss. Very different fates awaited each respective group. Guards were given real prison guard uniforms, complete with nightsticks and whistles. Many guards even donned mirrored sunglasses, which were meant to prevent eye contact with the prisoners. Or maybe just to look like Boss Godfrey from Cool Hand Luke. Prisoners, on the other hand, were stripped, deloused, and dressed in sandals and an ill-fitting numbered smock. They weren't issued any underwear, but they were given nylon stocking caps, which they were asked to wear in lieu of having their heads shaved. Once dressed, a chain was placed on each of their legs. Prisoners were only addressed by their number and had to refer to themselves and the other prisoners in the same way. It was a recipe for dehumanization and oppression. Zimbardo himself served as superintendent of the prison, and researcher David Jaffe played the warden. The two were responsible for instructing the guards and laying down the scope of their duties. First and foremost, the guards were told to maintain order. To this end, they were allowed to use any means necessary, short of physical violence. Things that were permitted included harassment, the withholding of food, and the deprivation of privileges at the guards' discretion. The guards, unlike the prisoners, were also allowed to work in shifts. The shifts, which each required three guards, lasted eight hours. Off-duty guards didn't have to be at the prison, but were asked to remain on call in case of an emergency. On the first night, the guards decided to use a whistle to rouse the prisoners from their sleep for a headcount at 2.30 a.m. Some of the prisoners didn't take the headcount seriously, and the guards punished them by making them do push-ups. After a headcount, the prisoners had already had enough and decided to rebel. On what was only the second morning of the experiment, they removed the numbers from their uniforms, pulled off their stocking caps, and barricaded themselves inside their cells using their beds. When the next shift of guards arrived in the morning, they were alarmed to find the prisoners yelling curses at them from their cells. They requested reinforcements and made plans to quell the uprising. They brought in the on-call guards, and the night shift volunteered to do extra duty. It was only day two, and things were already getting ugly. In order to get the cell doors open, the guards used fire extinguishers to force the prisoners away from the barricades. Once that was accomplished, they rushed into the cell, grabbed the prisoner, and stripped them naked. Naked as a jaybird. The birthday suit prisoner was then placed into solitary confinement. While they were there, the guards would remove the bed from their cell, meaning the prisoner would have to sleep on the floor when they returned. Once the rebellion was controlled, the guards had to figure out how to prevent another from happening without having to have all nine guards perpetually on duty. The solution was to divide and conquer. The guards deemed one of the cells the privilege cell. Well-behaved prisoners were placed in the privilege cell, where they would get their uniforms and beds back and even get special meals. The other prisoners were not only denied of all these things, but were deprived of their normal food rations. After a few hours, the guards would randomly move the prisoners around. The idea was to create confusion and sow the seeds of distrust among the inmates. And it worked. In the wake of the uprising, conditions deteriorated fast. The guards started making a point of dehumanizing the prisoners by making them call out their identification numbers. Prisoners were also forbidden from using the bathroom at night and were forced to use a bucket in their cell instead. Soon the guards stopped emptying the buckets, reasoning that the bad smell was simply another punishment for misbehavior. 
Despite what Zimbardo described as frequent reminders from the staff, the guards grew increasingly aggressive. The most egregious behavior occurred when the staff wasn't paying attention, which became stressful and frustrating for the prisoners. The prisoners, as a result, became increasingly submissive, and the experiment was about to claim its first victim. After only 36 hours, prisoner Doug Corpy began suffering from what was described as acute emotional disturbance, disorganized thinking, uncontrollable crying, and rage. The guards used this opportunity to try and coax him into becoming a snitch. But when his erratic behavior continued, the staff realized Doug was in genuine distress and needed to be released from the experiment. On the sixth day, Zimbardo convened a mock parole board, which was headed by one of the experiment's prison consultants. Inmates who believed they deserved parole would be allowed to present their case to the board. It was during these presentations that Zimbardo, along with the other researchers, began to theorize that the prisoners no longer saw themselves as participants in an experiment, but as real prisoners. According to Zimbardo, the prisoners had internalized their crimes, as well as their roles as inmates. As for the guards, he came to identify three different types. Tough but fair guards, who followed prison rules. Good guys, who did little favors for the prisoners and never punished them. And finally, guards who appeared to thoroughly enjoy the power they wielded. Zimbardo felt this last group was hostile, arbitrary, and inventive in their forms of prisoner humiliation. Zimbardo concluded that most people were ultimately willing to fulfill whatever role they were given in a respective social setting. He even admitted that he had internalized his role as superintendent over his role as a psychologist. At one point, Zimbardo brought in a real priest to talk with the prisoners. It was during this conversation that prisoner 819 broke down sobbing. He was so hysterical that the staff agreed to take him to a doctor. The other inmates, for their part, turned on 819. Researchers offered to send him home, but 819 surprisingly refused, saying that he couldn't leave because the other inmates had labeled him a bad prisoner. Zimbardo was forced to intervene. Pulling the student aside, he forcefully reminded him that he was not really an inmate and that the experiment was not really a prison. The prisoner is alleged to have stopped crying and looked at Zimbardo like a small child awakened from a nightmare. After that, 819 agreed to leave. On the sixth day, a recent PhD recipient named Christina Maslach was brought in to interview the prisoners. Horrified by what she saw, she confronted Zimbardo, asking him how he could see what she had seen and not care about the students who were suffering. According to Zimbardo, he quickly realized she was right. It was at that moment that he decided to prematurely end the study. Later, he would reflect on his own behavior and claim that it wasn't until his discussion with Maslach that he realized how deeply he had internalized his role at the prison. Ultimately, he concluded he was thinking like a prison superintendent rather than a research psychologist. Both the ethics and conclusions of the Stanford prison experiment remain highly controversial. Its scientific rigor has been repeatedly questioned by scientists who have been unable to duplicate its results. And even Zimbardo himself has admitted the whole thing was more of a demonstration than a scientific experiment. A 2018 book by French academic Thibault Latixier dismissed the entire thing as nonsense. He argued that the guards had been told what results they were supposed to produce and were advised and guided by Zimbardo and his staff the whole way through. So what do you think? How would you have fared in the study? Let us know in the comments below. And while you're at it, check...
Well, very interesting indeed. This was a an experiment that was supposed to go two weeks, but actually only went six days. And the people who were chosen for the experiment were just regular folks, regular persons. You know, when you look up the etymology of persons, you'll find the word persona. And the word persona is to like wear a mask. And depending on the social construct that you're in, you begin to take on that persona. You see, when you look further into this particular study that happened, the guards were free to do as they will as long as they didn't hurt someone. However, the guards didn't think the experiment was about them. They thought it was about the behaviors of the inmates because the guards are the good guys. But the guards became authoritarian really, really quickly. Now, other things in this experiment is how they started turning the prisoners against each other and how they brought they sowed distrust in amongst each other. Very, very interesting. And everyone acting on their persona. Hear what I'm saying. The other part of it is, just look back in the last couple of years. We had people who did things that they wouldn't have done. We've had family turn on other family members because of choices that they made to participate along with the group herd mentality or to go their own way. And what I see happening now is actually a flip. Let me explain what I mean by that. Right now, whether an old guard falls and a new one rises or the old guard stays there and we just have to grin and bear it, there is a planned rebellion. And it's rising all around the world. But what persona will the people who rise up take? And it's always a divide and conquer strategy. Right now, and I'm, you know, we're, we're part of, we're, we're patriotic about our country. 
but the more I hear America first, the more I start to really wonder. Because, listen, from a political standpoint, foreign policy standpoint, America first makes a lot of sense. And I agree, every country, no matter what country you're in, the people who are elected or selected, depending on the country you're in, should represent those people. But right now they're not. They're actually working against the people worldwide. But if things change, who are going to be the ones who rise up? And what persona will they take? When we've just seen over the last couple of years, people so easily being pitted against other people. We see the church now being the final step of that 10-point plan. And we see, you know, this new age thing, and there's people who claim to be patriots, claim to be fighting alongside of you, who are saying out loud, by 2030, we'll all have ascended and you'll know why all this had to happen. And I will just be bold and say to you, even those who are playing in opposition in this so-called community of people who are awake, most of them are highly connected and controlled. And most of them, even if they claim to be in opposition to someone, are actually working with those that they claim to be going after. It's incredible to watch what is happening. This psychological operation is so huge it's almost unfathomable but as always i think god has some answers and the one thing we have to remember is although god puts man in office and you know jesus said render unto caesar what is caesar's no law supersedes biblical law and God's law. No law. And there is no law against God's laws, even though they're trying to make it that way. We need to hold firm and hold fast onto the only truth in this world. And that is the Bible. Now for today's story. It's an interesting one and hold the information that you've already received at bay 
and see if you can't strike a couple parallels. I'm just going to read this to you. I'm reading from Numbers verse 16, or chapter 16. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, and the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Datham and Ibrahim, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men too, and they stood before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly. Men of renown, they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face, and he spoke to Korah and all of his group, saying, Tomorrow morning, the Lord will make known who is his and who is holy. We will bring that one near to himself. Indeed, the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censors for yourselves, Korah, and your whole group, and put fire in them, and place incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. It is too small an honor for you that God of Israel has singled you out from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to perform the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them. You have to understand the Levites were the, they were really set apart. They were, they were holy. And he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you. But are you seeking the priesthood as well? Therefore, you and your whole group are the ones gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? Then Moses sent summons to Dathan and Ibarim, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come up. It is enough that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness. But you would also appoint yourself as master over us. Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing of milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you gouge out the eyes of these men who will not come up? 
Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Pay no attention to their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. Moses said to Korah, You and all your group be present before the Lord tomorrow. You and they along with Aaron. And each of you take his censer and put incense on it. And each of you bring his censer before the Lord. 250 censers. Also, you and Aaron shall each bring his censer. So they took each one his own censer and put fire on it and placed the incense on it. And they stood at the entrance of the tent of the meeting with Moses and Aaron. So Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation so that I may consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces and said, God, God of the spirits of humanity, when one person sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation saying, get away from the areas around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses arose and went to Datham and Abram with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, get away now from these tents of these wicked men and do not touch anything that belongs to them or you will be swept away in all their sin. So they moved away from the areas around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Ibram. And Dathan and Nibiram came out and stood at the entrances of their tents, along with their wives, sons, and little ones. Then Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds. For it is not my doing. If these men die the death of all mankind, or if they suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them with everything that is theirs and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will know that these men have been disrespectful to the Lord. And as he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households and all the people who belonged to Korah with all their possessions. So they all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Then all of Israel who were around them fled to their outcry and said, the earth might swallow us. Fire also came out from the Lord and he consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. 
And when the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, that he shall pick up the censers from the midst of the burned area, because they are holy, and you are to scatter the burning coals further away. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their own lives, have them made into hammered sheets as plating for the altar. Since they did present them before the Lord, and they are holy, and they shall serve as a sign to the sons of Israel. So the priest Eleazar took the bronze censers with which the men who had burned had offered, and they hammered them out as a plating for the altar, and as a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman, anyone who was not the descendants of Aaron, would approach and burn incense before the Lord, and he would not become like Korah and his group, as the Lord had spoken to him. Korah was a righteous man. He was the son of a Levite. And he probably lived a righteous life. But he was dissatisfied with where the world was going. So he assembled a bunch of people. And they wanted to do it their way. They thought by going against God's chosen ones that they would find that land of milk and honey, perhaps. The Lord consumed them and all their families. I know some of you think Old Testament stories are just, that's just, you know, 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago. It's the same God yesterday as today. We are called to judge by the word of God what is sin and what is not sin. That's fair play. We are not called to judge each other. That's you trying to become God. There's only one judge. And he's powerful. He's the beginning of the end. We have to be careful of what is going on. And even the rebellion against the powers that are in the world right now. Are we called to rebel against them or are we called to pray for them? Are we called to take them down or are we called to pray the Lord's will be done? Look, I'm struggling here with these things. I want to fight. I really do. It's kind of in my nature. But it's contrary to what God's word says. Now, I do believe we as the church 
do need to stand together. But it's only in our togetherness believing that he who died on the cross has the power. And we're merely just his sons and daughters, kings and priests even, who walk in this earth, but it's to do his will. And he will become victorious, but we cannot do it on our effort. Doesn't matter how many conferences we have or go to. It doesn't matter, you know, all these different things. Like, sure, we should we should let the politicians know of our disdain and our removal of our rights, like the right to speak, you know, the right to serve, the right to not be a prisoner. It's good to do all those things. But we have to be very careful not to cross the line and to become small G gods. Please uh, let me know in the comments if this show made sense to you. I hope it did. It was uh, actually what seems simple are very, very deep precepts and concepts that are in this and the axiom, the master principle is God appoints leaders and then we have to just do our job and no one else's. So leave me a comment. Let me know if it makes sense. <clears throat> and um, going to be back Thursday. Have a great guest on Thursday. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, before I go, I'm just going to, I'm going to say this every time until, you know, mid first week of January. We've put together something really special with my libertystand.com. And we're actually at a moment in time where I'm pretty sure I know what's coming. Uh, there's going to be an announcement the end of the first week of January. And it's one of those things that you do not want to have regret. You want to be involved in this. And together as a community with Right On Radio, we're, we've actually formed something really special. And with what is coming, look, it's just good for you and your family. And I think that many of you will look back a year from now and say with regret that you didn't take 30 seconds to go to mylibertystand.com. And then when someone calls you, just honor the appointment. It's 15 minutes, folks, 15 minutes of your life. If you think you know everything, you don't. It's worth checking out. Go to mylibertystand.com. And in the meantime, remember, love your God, love your family, love your neighbor as yourself.
and make a difference in your community.